the difference between an average charity and the most effective charities is about a thousand times more impact for the same amount of money. If you had two options in any economic decision in your life and you could get a thousand times more benefit for the same amount of money, why would you ever choose anything else? And so One for the World believes that if we can just make more people aware of the amazing evidence of cost effectiveness that we have and the existence of these charities that are doing unbelievably effective work, by making people aware of that, we will just get more and more and more people to join this community and give a small amount of money to these charities every month. And that by doing that, we believe that we can end extreme poverty. I could seek out people who don't agree and try and persuade them and argue with them and try and tell them, no, you shouldn't give locally. You should give internationally because that's where you're going to get the most return on investment. But I think that's incredibly difficult to do. And so when you have a choice in your uh, charity or your business of either trying to persuade people who don't like your product to like it or just trying to find people who already like it and just haven't heard of it. I think you should do the latter. It's a lot easier. Welcome to Mission First, the podcast to learn from successful entrepreneurs changing the world for the better. Are you in the first three years of your company? And do you want to save time by avoiding making the same mistakes that lots of entrepreneurs have already done? Then make sure to follow this podcast because you are going to get actionable strategies coming directly from those who have found product market fit and are scaling up fast with their for-profit companies or their NGOs. Think about it as a masterclass about product innovation, business models, leadership, and growth marketing. Bonjour, bonjour. I am Gilles Toussaint. I help entrepreneurs have a bigger impact with this podcast, and I also help mission-driven companies increase their revenue more efficiently with growth marketing and my company, GT Impact. If your income was suddenly cut by 1%, would that have a negative impact on your quality of life? This is a question posed by One for the World Executive Director Jack Lewers and also the foundation of the sponsorship model. One for the World is a movement of people changing charitable giving to end extreme poverty. Since 2014, they have donated over $1 million to highly effective charities fighting extreme poverty and malaria-related death. In this episode, I had the chance to speak with Jack about his experience working in the nonprofit sector. He shared highly actionable insights into how to reach the right donors and ensure a bigger impact with your NGO. Listen to this episode to learn why the most impactful charities are 100 or even 1,000 times more effective, or to learn one for the world's very unique approach to recruiting donors that enables them to build the sponsorship pipeline for long-term growth. We also talked about how to calculate and clearly show the tangible impact created by your NGO, four essential criteria to evaluate the effectiveness of a charitable organization, plus many more actionable tips on data-driven decision-making, marketing, and managing your NGO. Let's dive in. Hi, Jack. Thank you very much for being here with us today. How are you? Hi, Gilles. I'm very well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So tell me a bit, you know, this podcast is about mission. What's your mission? So the mission of One for the World is to build a community of people 
who give to the most effective charities working in global health and poverty. Now, how do we make that happen? Well, one of the things I'm going to talk about today that might surprise our listeners is that the difference between an average charity and the most effective charities is about a thousand times more impact for the same amount of money. And that might surprise people because in surveys, we see that most people think, well, the difference between an average and a brilliant charity is probably 1.5 to 2.5 times more effectiveness. But when they find out that actually the difference is at least 100 times more impact and often 1,000 times more impact, some people can never give to charity in the same way again. Because if you had two options in any economic decision in your life, and you could get a thousand times more benefit for the same amount of money. Why would you ever choose anything else? And so One for the World believes that if we can just make more people aware of the amazing evidence of cost effectiveness that we have and the existence of these charities that are doing unbelievably effective work, by making people aware of that, we will just get more and more and more people to join this community and give a small amount of money to these charities every month. And that by doing that, we believe that we can end extreme poverty. Let's talk a little bit. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to talk about how you filter or how you evaluate the most impactful charities. But let's talk for a second about you know, the impact that you have with, with your company right now. Do you have some, some numbers you can share of how impactful your, the company is uh, right now? I can. So one thing to start with is we work in quite an academic definition of impact. Impact is one of those words that is uh, abused, I think, in a marketing sense by a lot of commercial companies and a lot of charities. But if you're being strict about the way that we can change the world, you have a series of stages in your programs. And the one that people think of a lot is actually an output. So an output is a bed net that you buy and give to someone who might get malaria or a mentoring session. And you'll often see these in the marketing of charities because they'll say, well, it costs just $10 to provide clean water for a year to a family. Now, that's not impact. That is an output. It's the output of the program. The next stage above that is the outcome. So what's the outcome that we're looking for when we do that output? So, for example, when we give someone the bed net, the outcome would be that they don't get malaria. If we give someone a mentoring session, the outcome might be that they're better able to get a job and so on. If we give them clean water, they have clean water to drink. The impact is the macro effect of all of these things added together over time. And so making claims about impact is sometimes quite speculative because the truth is, if you're a normal sized charity doing normal work, you're probably not having an enormous impact day to day. And to have a real impact, to really change the world in a profound way, you're probably going to have to work with lots of other partners. And that might improve, include government or much larger charities and being part of an entire movement. So with all of that being said, just because we're very strict about the definitions we use at One for the World, as we're going to talk about today, I do have some output statistics from the money that we've raised and passed on to our charities. So since 2014, One for the World has funded just under 100,000 anti-malarial bed nets to be given to people in malarial areas. 
we've funded just under 50,000 vitamin A supplements to be given to children who, without adequate vitamin A in their diet, are at risk of going blind or even dying before their fifth birthday. We've also dewormed over 200,000 children. Now, deworming is an interesting uh, case within effective giving that we might talk about a bit later because the evidence base is slightly weaker than some of our other interventions. But we have seen that if children aren't dewormed, and so this means they have intestinal worms or worm-based diseases that can be very debilitating, we see that over 20 years, children who are dewormed will be considerably richer than children who weren't dewormed when they were at school. So we fund this treatment because if kids don't have these debilitating diseases, their educational achievement goes up and ultimately they are wealthier 20 years later. So we have incredibly strong evidence of the longevity of this intervention. And so those are just some of the outputs that we've funded. Now, if we want to talk about the impact of what One for the World is doing, well, the closest we can get to that, I think, credibly is to talk about how many lives have we saved of children who would, or, or adults who would otherwise have died without our intervention? So it's not enough to just stop someone getting malaria. We need to believe that they would otherwise have got malaria and that they would have died. And so there are lots of assumptions built into this modelling. But we think that since 2014, One for the World members have saved something between about 30 and 50 lives. And that's a very conservative estimate. That's pretty important. Like saving a life is something that has no price on it, that I really think. Yes, well, it's interesting because even saying this, I had to put all these caveats in. And the reason for that is that the charitable sector markets itself in a way that is, frankly, fundamentally dishonest. And it relates to the incentives that charities have to try and raise money. And so some of your listeners might listen to that and think, well, 30 to 50 is not a very impressive number, is even compared to 200,000 children who are dewormed. But if you're being really intellectually honest and rigorous, you actually end up dealing with quite small numbers. Because apart from anything else, we're not just talking about, well, there were this many people in the communities that we reached who are still alive. We're trying to say there are this many people in these communities who would probably otherwise have died without our intervention. And then the second thing to say about this is 30 to 50 may not sound like much, but most people listening to this podcast and you and me, we will probably never directly save a human life except maybe through our donations. So we like to say, you probably never jump into a pond and pull a drowning child out of it. You'll probably never run into a burning building and drag someone out of it and save their life. But you can literally save lives by giving effectively. And you don't have to have superpowers to do it, and you don't have to put yourself in danger in order to do it. So if any of your listeners heard that and thought, 30 to 50 over seven years, that doesn't sound like very much. I would say reframe that as how many lives will you actually save where if you hadn't intervened, that person would have died. And I'm very proud of that record. And you can be proud. And I think, as I said, the numbers for me here doesn't matter. That specific number doesn't matter. It matters because for me, it's very important. And as you said, I think nobody can, except firemen out here, 
and and a few people can really say they are really saving lives. So any achievement on that, I think, is better than anyone can do. And then, as you said, there is the outcome, which is the amount of people you've helped with your solutions. If people want to check as well, something I can mention is like you're really transparent on your website. You have the last fiscal tax, like your tax sheet from I think 2020, which is there where I saw that you know we're we're talking about a revenue of about like 400. I had written it somewhere here, 470,000 if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, uh, something like Yeah, 457,000 euro for a charity and minus the expenses that's arrived to 206,000. And expenses are mostly like basically salaries. So how big is the team right now? So we've just grown to four people about two weeks ago, but until then, you know, we're just three of us. And I should say on those financial figures, you're right that all of this is on our website and transparency is something that we prize in charities. And so we try to model that ourselves. But there's a separate figure to the turnover of the organization. So the figures you're talking about are our operational income and expenses. So we have to raise money for our own operating costs, and then we spend money to try and achieve our goals. But separate to that is the money that we are able to raise and send on to our recommended charities. And so last year, that was about $750,000, which was about 140% growth from the previous year. And that's the figure that we focus on a lot because in order for One for the World to justify its existence, we need to say that for every dollar that we spend on our own operating costs, we're moving more than that through to the charities that we recommend. And so last year, the ratio between those was about um, 1 to 1.6, 1.7, something like that. And that is actually relatively modest. We have ambitions to do much more than that. But as we had just grown the team to three people, now four people and grown our operating costs a lot, there's going to be a lag until the revenue that we're moving to our charities sees the benefit of that new staff team and, and grows in the future. So, Jack, you have a, a specific like, model for the people to donate, if I understand correctly, with your, with your organization, because and that's how the name of your organization also like, come from, I guess. So can you explain to us a bit more about that model? Yes. So the reason that we're called One for the World is that we ask people to pledge 1% or more of their income for life to our recommended charities. Now, that might sound like a really big commitment, but there's a really good way of thinking about this. Think in your head of whatever your salary is and then take off 1%. So let's say you earn $100,000 a year. Imagine that you only earn $99,000. Would you still be prepared to do your job if it paid you $99,000 instead of $100,000? Yeah, probably. I think most people would be prepared to do that. Now think, well, at the end of each month, if instead of bringing home my whole paycheck, I brought home 99% of it, would my quality of life really be any different? And the answer for most people is no. If you, instead of bringing home $10,000 each month, you brought home $9,900, you probably wouldn't really notice that in your quality of life. And yet, by giving just this small amount of money, you are able to save lives, as I was saying earlier. 
And so we ask people just to make this small sacrifice each month, but for life. And now we have several thousand people who've agreed to do that. And that's the money I was talking about when I talked about our growth in revenue to our charities. It is the accumulation of hundreds and soon thousands of people doing this each month, making this small sacrifice that they themselves won't notice, that won't change their quality of life. But when we aggregate all those things together, we're able to achieve great things. And that's the figures I was talking about earlier, 200,000 children dewormed, 100,000 bed nets distributed to people who live in malarial areas. So our model is this effectively a subscription model, I suppose, in commercial terms. 1% of income adjusted as your salary goes up and down over your life, but for your whole career. How many people have you said are actually donating right now, committed to that? So at the moment, we have about 750 live donors. But the second thing I should mention about One for the World's model is we do a lot of outreach on university campuses. And when we're talking to university students, they will say, this sounds like a great idea, but I don't have any income right now. In fact, if they're in the United States, they're usually racking up astronomical amounts of student <laughs> debt day to day. So yeah. some, some people, my colleague Kenan likes to joke, when I was a student, I had a seriously negative income. And so what do we do with those people? And why is it that no other charities go and speak to students? Well, because they're not very good prospects as donors. But we have a piece of software that we, uh, a supporter of ours developed from scratch, and it's able to, to give you the option to start your subscription up to four years in the future. So you can select the amount you want to give, you can select the charities that you want to support, but you just select a start date as late as 2025 at the moment. And so that allows these students to say, well, I can't do this right now, but I am committed to this when I graduate. And so I'm going to set this up in the future. And that pipeline at the moment is a further 1,600 people. So if we stopped one for the world's outreach today, but all of those people followed through, we should see something in the region of sort of 220, 230% growth in terms of our donors anyway in the next four years. Now, obviously, not everybody who does this eventually follows through, although um, it's worth saying. In order to do this, you have to put in your credit card details or bank details and select a definite start date and an amount. So it's not a theoretical pledge. You have said, without my intervention, this will come out of my bank account or off my credit card on this date. But sometimes people change their minds. Often people's credit cards have failed. So we've had to put a technical fix in for that because chances are you won't have the same credit card in 2025 that you have right now. And I guess sometimes you know, people have just decided this isn't something they can do or they don't get the job they were hoping for on graduation. But nonetheless, it's a real advantage for One for the World that we have about 750 donors right now, but we have another 1,600 who, in theory, we've already signed up as future customers. Okay, so you, you can consider that you have 751 live donors because I'm also making the pledge that I will start ah. donating to your, to your organization after. Fantastic. Uh, so Thank I, you. I, I'm saying it out loud now, so I, I will have to be committed, but I will happily do it. I think the, the first time I met you was actually because you were giving a speech at the company of my girlfriend, and that's how she heard about you, and she told me about your speech there. So it's also good to know if people are listening here that I think you are actually giving these conferences or speeches at companies as well. 
Yes, so this is a big new area of growth for us. So as I said earlier, we have this theory, which is there are a number of people who want to do what we're asking them to. They want to give and they want to give effectively. And maybe they're a bit frustrated with the charitable sector or a bit skeptical of it. And they're not sure where their money goes or they've had a bad experience with charities before or they've read these terrible stories of charities that raise huge amounts of money and then can't deploy it effectively. And so any outreach that we can do that puts us in front of a new audience, we believe that there will be people in the room who say, I have always wanted something like this and I didn't know it existed, so I'm going to sign up. And so a big part of my role now is to go into companies and speak to them about effective giving. And I did that at your girlfriend's company, and I'm doing it later today at a financial services company in London. And I've done a lot of the big tech firms in the US, a lot of the big consultancies in the US. And that is now the primary driver of actual revenue to our charities is now those tools. Now, it's worth saying, obviously, the university work is a bit strange from a commercial point of view because the payoff comes in future years. So we might have a volunteer sign someone up on a university campus today in the States, and they might not even start donating until 2025, and they might not start donating a big amount of money until 2035. So it's not to say that the corporate outreach is necessarily more important than the university work. It's just that it produces revenue much quicker. And so by doing both, we hope that we're able to accelerate our growth so that we're building this very, very strong future pipeline of donors, but also signing people up right now. And thank you so much for saying you will take the pledge. If any of your listeners feel the same, I would encourage them to take action. And hopefully I will persuade them of some things uh, over the next hour that might make them consider that very seriously. I will definitely, in any case, put the links to your charity, to your organization directly in the episode page and on the, all the platforms as well. I think like business model-wise, it's a brilliant case that you have here because it's something very easy to understand and that long, like basically the retention is almost 100%. So I think it's a great model. And also marketing-wise, what I must say is I think you are doing the things like perfectly as well because you are filling up the top of the funnel with your students who are not like, giving us really right now but who will come down the funnel massively in four years' time and then going into the B2B side where people actually, every time you get a company, let's not go into too much detail about growth with that because I think that's not going to learn anything to the audience. But I, I, I'm sure that every time you give one speech like that in a company, you are getting effectively new donors because if the company first accepts to have a speech on effective giving, which would be the title of it, then usually it means that the value of the company is already in a certain direction. So for sure, you will get people who will be interested to donate from that company. I think one of the things, I think maybe if you partner with banks who give all these loans to the students in America or in the UK, that would be the next step because you will get a lot of money if you get 1% on all the, the bank loans from, from the banks for the students. Talking about what you were actually saying and effective giving. So you were explaining that you really try to evaluate the most impactful charities. So you gather the money and then you donate it to the most effective charities. I read on your website and I've learned that you, know, you were closely like working with GiveWell, which is a charity evaluator. So can you explain a bit without going too much into the details, but how this 
works? Yes. <clears throat> so our relationship with GiveWell is we think that evaluating charities is incredibly hard. It takes a lot of expertise and it takes a lot of time. And so we don't aim to do that ourselves. We said earlier we have a staff team of four. Uh, GiveWell have a staff team of, I, I don't know exactly, but 40 or 50 people. And um, famously, they do 20,000 hours a year of research into the best charities in the world. And they have subject matter experts who do that. It's not a simple job, and it takes a lot of time and a lot of expertise. So we take their recommendations. Now, when they're looking at what is a truly cost-effective charity, they look at four things. So the first thing they look at is evidence of effectiveness. Does the charity use a method that actually works? So can we say with certainty that doing this thing or near certainty, that doing this thing has a positive effect. So we, they review a lot of scientific studies, actually the same sorts of scientific evidence that we've just been using with coronavirus vaccines, randomized control trials. Your listeners have, may have heard about this for the first time in the last 18 months, but these large-scale trials where you have two groups and you randomly put people into either the group that receives the intervention or a group that doesn't, and you see what the difference in outcome is over time. So they look at a lot of these studies and they try to see whether the intervention actually works. And I'll give you an example of this. When we did this large-scale uh, large randomized control trial on education interventions, we found that giving textbooks to children in developing countries to help their education actually had no noticeable positive effect on their educational attainment at all, even though you might think it would. Intuitively, you would think, well, I learned using textbooks, and if you don't have them, that's a drawback. So just giving textbooks to children in developing countries seems like a good idea. Well, it does seem like a good idea. It just turns out it doesn't really increase their educational attainment. However, by contrast, if we teach children based on the level that they're at in their attainment, so you say, okay, I'm going to get all the kids who are at this level in maths together, and I'm going to teach them at the same time, rather than by age, which is what we tend to do in developed countries. In developed countries, we tend to say at 11, you learn this, at 12, you learn this, at 13, you learn this. If we teach by ability rather than by age, it has a huge positive effect on people's education. And so that's an example of where the data is able to tell us, here are two good sounding ideas, but do they actually work and how much do they work? This is another topic that we could definitely go through into the new ways of education. And let's see that out for that episode. But so working partnership with GiveWell. So here, one of the lessons for the entrepreneurs out there is as well, you know, you know what you wanted to focus on raising money, but evaluating the most effective charities you basically have partnered with a company was doing that that's right and i should say um not only is this obviously more efficient and if we were to try to do this ourselves we would have to compete against GiveWell, and we'd almost certainly lose that competition when i talk about the second criteria they use i think you'll see even more why this takes expertise so we have this first thing which is evidence of effectiveness does it actually work but then the second thing is cost effectiveness so once we found a method that works and an example i've talked about a bit today already is giving uh, bed nets that have been sprayed with insecticide to people in malarial areas is a very effective way of stopping them from getting malaria it's extremely effective we've seen that in multiple studies well then we're looking for well which charities are able to do this most efficiently because there are lots of charities out there who distribute bed nets but some of them do it considerably more effectively than others. And once we've got a figure 
a really rigorous figure for well, how much does it actually cost to buy a bed net, treat it with insecticide, get it into a malarial area and give it to someone who would otherwise have been at risk of, of contracting malaria? What's the actual cost of that? Well, then we can compare those costs. And by looking at, well, how effective is the program and how much does it cost to deliver, we can put those numbers together and come up with a cost effectiveness figure. So again, an example, uh, the Against Malaria Foundation, which is one of the charities we recommend the most, fantastic organization, incredibly effective, incredibly efficient. It costs them just over $5, $5.02, I think was the last figure I saw to buy a bed net, treat it with insecticide, and get it into the hands of someone who's living in a malarial area. There are other charities out there who do the same thing, but it costs $11. So we're already looking at under half the price by backing the most um, effective, leanest charity doing this. And in this instance, the result is basically the same. The effectiveness of this program is going to be basically the same because you're giving this um, quite simple intervention and it's quite easy. All things being equal, you would expect distributing a bed net in a malarial area to have the same effect, irrespective of who did it. And so we have this charity that's simply able to do it at twice the cost effectiveness of the next charity. What explains the difference? Is it just purely operations? Basically, yes, it's operational efficiency. So there can be lots of factors that go into this, but in the case of the Against Malaria Foundation, they have an extremely lean staff. I think they might be four or five people and they're turning over about $100 million in donations at the moment a year and distributing tens of thousands of bed nets, probably hundreds of thousands of bed nets. And so they're, they're just very lean operation. But there are lots of opportunities in that supply chain and distribution model and working with local partners to create efficiencies. And so it's not surprising to me that the most efficient charity in this space is twice as efficient as the next one. In particular, by the way, because charities are not particularly incentivized to be cost effective. Now, there is obviously an ethical incentive, and I think charities take that very seriously. I think most people running charities are good people who are trying to do the right thing. But the market of charitable giving doesn't rigorously reward the most efficient charities in the same way that the commercial sector does. The commercial sector, the market, the free market would simply reward a company that can deliver the same product for half the price over and over and over again. But because charitable giving is weird and only 3% of donors give based on effectiveness and probably all the things I'm talking about are new to almost all of your listeners because of all these problems in the charitable giving market, actually we don't rigorously find the charities that can do this most effectively and most efficiently. So we've talked about the evidence of effectiveness, which is the first criteria, does it actually work, and the cost effectiveness, so how efficiently can a charity deliver this? And then there's two other things that GiveWell look at just to round off that evaluation. One of them is, does the charity have room for more funding? So we saw a couple of years ago the Ice Bucket Challenge, you might remember this, went viral on social media. That delivered enormous amounts of money to the ALS Association in America, about 20 times their normal turnover. So I think the figure is they were given about $100 million. That, that, I'm not very certain of that figure, you'd have to check it, but it was a lot of money came through the Ice Bucket Challenge. If you take an organization that ordinarily turns over, I don't know, $5 million and give them $100 million, there are going to be challenges in deploying that money effectively. 
So what we're looking for is not these charities where if we give them a load of money, it will overwhelm them and they won't be able to use it. We're looking for charities that have room for more funding so they could do the thing they do at roughly the same effectiveness at scale quickly. And so that's um, why when you look at the charities that we support, they have a funding gap that they're able to put their finger on and say, look, we're doing this. But if we had 20, 30, 50 million more um, more dollars, we could literally do much, much, much more of this work and we could do it quickly within the next two to three years. And then finally, so we've already looked at evidence of effectiveness, cost effectiveness, and room for more funding. Uh, GiveWell just require these charities to be radically transparent. So they type up everything. They type up their entire evaluation of the charity, the modelling that they use to look at cost effectiveness, the correspondence they have with the charity, the finances of that charity, everything is published publicly on GiveWell's website. So you have to have a certain mindset to be eligible for that. You have to be prepared to undergo really sceptical public scrutiny to get onto GiveWell's recommended charities. And so those are the four things that they're looking for when we're trying to identify these truly outstanding, unbelievably efficient, unbelievably effective charities. When you talk about the effectiveness of charity, It's making me think about the interview I had with Paul Watson, who just explained as well the difference between Greenpeace and NC Shepherd. Like, no offense to Greenpeace here, but, you know, explaining that Greenpeace has X million of euro per year and they basically have two ships dedicated to the fight for the ocean, while Sea Shepherd has a tenth or a hundred times less uh, funding, but they have ten times more ships just for that cause. And purely because He explained to me that they always relied on being an interventionist organization. So they basically all of the money is spent on operations and a very, very little part on marketing. In fact, they don't do any marketing, basically, because marketing is done via all the PR that is done organically from the company. While you also see that, and I can understand that every time if you live in Berlin, you probably see that too, right, wherever you live. But here as a corner, I see volunteers or maybe not volunteers but people who are just giving out flyers for the charity every week and i really even though i i love you know like that people are dedicating their time for that whatever is voluntary or getting paid for it they want to do they want to have an impact but you know being in digital marketing for example i know that the effectiveness of that is a hundred or i don't know how many times way less effective than other things you could do, especially, for example, digital marketing or no marketing at all, but just putting that money into operations. And we know that the bigger the organization and the older, I think, the organizations, they tend to be, they tend to be spending a lot of money into having just purely not operational people, but more administrative. Uh, and let tasks. me just jump in on this, because this is a great way of demonstrating two things. So the first thing is, these stats are from the UK, So, I, but I expect they go across all markets. That just happens to be where I read the report. For every um, pound spent on recruiting an individual donor, that is just anyone, you and me, on the street, you get about pound ten back. So very, very, very low ROI, 1 to 1.1 ROI. <laughs> and that's basically because you have all these massive brands competing for, these, for this money. Um, when you look at other types of fundraising, Uh, I don't know the stats for digital marketing, but I know that the legacy fundraising, that is asking people to remember the charity in their will, you're talking about four, five, six to one. So there is a real, um, a strange decision made by lots of charities to fight for the most competitive type of funding. And it's not a very good way of raising money. But the second thing is, you mentioned these two charities, the Sea Shepherd and, and Greenpeace. 
Well, let's just demonstrate how we'd apply these criteria for your listeners. So the first question that you should try to answer is, well, what is the most effective way of achieving what they want to achieve? So is it ships? Because it might be, either it is or it isn't, right? Either having these ships is a really, really effective way of creating change, or it isn't. And Sea Shepherd have kind of gone all in on that as the idea. That's what they do. So that's the first question. And I don't know what the answer to this is. I'm just saying this is how you would interrogate it. So does ships actually work? That's the first thing. Secondly, if ships actually do work, creating the change that we're looking for, how much does it cost to run and maintain a ship relative to the amount of change that it produces? So I could believe that ships are a good way of, you know, protest ships are a good way of creating change. But I could also believe that political lobbying is a better way of preventing climate change, I should say, because ultimately, if you change the policy of the EU or the US on carbon, that probably has a bigger effect than using a protest ship. And then you'd look for, well, which organisation can absorb more funding to do more of the thing that actually works. Now, I don't know what the answer to any of those things are. I'm not a specialist in this area in climate, but that's how you would apply these criteria to these two charities and see, well, which one do I think I should donate to? Yeah, there is so many things that need to, to be done in order to improve like basically the efficiency of all of this. I agree. Let's focus now on the, the list of advice you sent me. So thank you very much for that. So we chose the topic of how to find the right model and customer for your NGO. And for having read your advice in advance, I'm really looking forward to discuss them because I think they are super, super valuable. So let's go through them. The first one is don't try to persuade people. Can you explain me a bit more about that one? Yes. So this, I think, is probably the most controversial one that I put in there. But through doing all these talks, I do a lot of these corporate talks. I am skeptical that I can persuade people to change their mind very often. I just don't think people change their mind that often, and especially not in a short space of time. So I come and talk to them for 35, 45 minutes. Am I really going to persuade them of something they didn't believe when they walked in? It's very uncertain and very poorly understood how we change people's minds. And actually, even the evidence we have is now being called into question because a lot of the studies in things like behavioral economics can't be replicated. So what One for the World does is we focus on finding the people who already agree with us. So I go into a room to speak at a corporate, and I reckon about one in three people already agree with us that we should give based on effectiveness and we should look for good return on investment on our donations. They just haven't heard of One for the World and they haven't heard of effective giving. And I try to target those people. Now, there's another way of doing this, which is I could seek out people who don't agree and try and persuade them and argue with them and try and tell them, no, you shouldn't give locally. You should give internationally because that's where you're going to get the most return on investment. But I think that's incredibly difficult to do. And I bring that example up because it's probably the most common objection to one for the world is people say, yes, but charity starts at home. I need to give in my local area. Well, that's not what we believe. We believe that you get, with very good evidence, that you get 100 times more effectiveness if you send your money into developing countries where it does a lot more. And so when you have a choice in your uh, charity or your business of either trying to persuade people who don't like your product to like it, or just trying to find people who already like it and just haven't heard of it, I think you should do the latter. It's a lot easier. This is where the best like, ROI is as well, right? and time spent. Absolutely. And 
okay, there may come a point where you've signed up every customer in the world who already agrees with you, and then you need to start persuading people. But by then, you're going to have uh, entire departments of people dedicated <laughs> to persuading people because you're going to be a huge company. So we'll deal with yeah, that. Yeah, but that's the basic of you know, like uh, startups growth one-on-one of course we're going to discuss in your next do's and don'ts about all the things you need to think about like find your early adopters and once you find them you know how to develop to boost that part and just focus on them while trying to persuade by the way to bounce on the fact that you say don't try to persuade people i read a guide yesterday about how to build trust in vaccination you know it's a big topic right now with covid i'll put the link as well in the the resources of the episode one of the things they say, using the values of care and love, for example, to build trust in the vaccination process is way more effective than just trying to deliver facts about safety. And this shows how changing people's minds is very, very difficult. But this is another topic. So the second do you sent me is do test different messages, but then settle on one. So tell me more. Yes. Yeah, so this is probably an example of... Uh, do what I say, not what I do, because I think One for the World has lots of work to do in this area. But there are probably lots of ways of describing what you do as a company, or especially as a charity. I tried out some earlier. I tried different bits of different ways of describing what One for the World does. And even if you just ask your staff to write down what it is that your company does, and these are people who should really know because they work for you, you'll probably get quite a wide variation of in the way that they describe the company or the charity. And of course, sometimes we want to use different messages for different audiences. So it might be that we have one audience that we're targeting who really responds to, so take one for the world. We might have one audience that really responds to the thing about effectiveness. They really want charities that are effective. But we might have another audience who really like the idea of giving 1% because it's affordable and it's regular and happens every month and it feels like a good commitment to make. So we might want different messages for them. But ultimately, what we need to do is test which messages motivate which groups and then focus on the most valuable group of supporters and double down on that message. Because I think what a lot of charities do, and I think One for the World does this too much, we try to appeal to everybody all of the time. And you can't do it effectively. You need to have targeted messaging that is picking out the audiences we are going to get the, the most return on investment. And so I think it's great to test lots of different ways of describing what you do, but you ultimately want to zero in on one or two key messages that you can deliver really simply and then hammer those messages over and over and over and over and over again. Now, as I say, I don't think One for the World is there yet. We've just hired a director of communications to help us do this a lot better. But if you combine this with uh, don't try to persuade people, just look for the people who already agree with you, this is basically product market fit, which is something you're listeners will be familiar with, I'm sure. And there's a great blog by the founder of Superhuman that people should look up on product market fit. But basically, find out what appeals to the people who really like what you do, and then double and triple down on that and look for more of those people. Don't try to design a product that's going to appeal to the people who are lukewarm about it. Find the fanatics and focus on them. Exactly. The third do you sent me is do be clear-eyed about reciprocity with your supporters. Yes, this is particularly applicable to charities and social impact startups, because I was the first member of staff at another charity in the UK uh, nearly 10 years ago, and I saw this happen there, and I've seen it happen at lots of other charities. People offer to help, and you bend over backwards to accommodate those supporters, because you're grateful and you want to appear grateful. 
So I have in the past created volunteer roles that I didn't need or want just so that supporters could fill them so that they could feel more involved in the charity. I have run events that had a really low chance of succeeding and often didn't succeed because a supporter came to me and was really excited about this idea of running this event. And I've even allowed people to call themselves ambassadors for charities that I've worked at when they did almost nothing day to day to help the charity. But the point of the charity is to serve its beneficiaries, not to serve its supporters. And so I believe you can still be nice to people who want to support and polite and not seem ungrateful, but also being you can also be firm about what is a good idea and what isn't and what you can commit the charity's resources to support and what you can't support with the charity's resources. Now, occasionally you're going to get supporters who get very disgruntled by that because they're terribly enthusiastic about running a poker night with their friends that's only going to raise $200 and they want the CEO to turn up and play in the poker game. And there might be some complex reasons for that, like actually a big part of this is that they want to signal to all their friends that they're involved in this charity or they want to bring some work contacts and it'll help them in their career. I mean, I'm not accusing people of being cynical, but sometimes if you think about it, you think, well, why is it that they're so into this idea? And you think, well, it's probably kind of stroking their ego to organize this poker night. It might be that you, um, you know, that this person's going to be upset if you don't want to do that. But you need to be clear eyed about who you're serving. You're serving your beneficiaries. And so this idea of reciprocity, your supporters need to be giving to you more than they're getting out. That's the whole point. Otherwise, there's no point having them around. And, and in my experience, the supporters, you have a problem with you saying, I really, really appreciate it. <clears throat> I love how excited you are with this right now. I don't think this is a big priority for us. And I'm not sure we've got the resources to support it. If people have a problem with that, they're probably not the type of supporters that you want. Now, very occasionally, you might do something you think is a bad idea because you're humoring someone. But you think ultimately by humoring them, you're going to serve your beneficiaries better in the future. And the classic idea of that is or example of that is you have an ultra high net worth donor who's giving you a lot of money and they really want to do something and you don't think it's a great idea, but you're like, well, I'm just going to do this because I know they're going to write me a check for $100,000 at the end of this year and keeping them happy is a good way of doing that. And so ultimately that's going to serve my beneficiaries better. Well, that's okay if you make that decision, but it's not okay to think this person who gives $20 a month and seems like a nice person and maybe in the future will be helpful to us. I'm just going to run this poker night for them to keep them sweet. That is a terrible decision, which I've made over and over and over again. And I've always regretted it. How do you define supporter here? Because I think it's not donator here. Is it like a volunteer? Is it the definition of a supporter for you here? Well, it's a very interesting point because I have always felt that all supporters should be donors. If you like this charity this much, Surely the first thing you should do is set up even <laughs> yeah. a small donation each month. I, I, we had this so often at, at this other charity that I work for, where we had people who did really, really, really lucrative jobs who said they loved the charity and lived and breathed it. And if they cut themselves, they bled this charity's name out of their veins. And yet they didn't give each month. Well, those two things are completely in conflict. But yes, you're right. What I mean by supporter is someone who's willing to volunteer time or try to help the charity to do its job better or raise more money or whatever. And so you do need those people. They are useful to you. You find a good one and they'll provide you 10, 20, 30 to one return on the time that you put into managing them and supporting them. 
but often people want to be a supporter in that volunteering time sense. I think because it pays them back a lot more, they get to feel good, it, it gives them a purpose, it's something they can do outside their job, it's something they can tell their friends about, it's something they can tell their work contacts about. So people really want that role. But A, if anyone's going to do that, they really need to be donating. And also, you need to be clear about the costs of supporting them with your time and resources and how much you're going to get back from that. When you said this is specific to charities or NGOs, I really believe there is a parallel to do for any person growing their own startups or their own business in here. Because at the end of the day, you're talking about people who are working for basically working, spending their time for you. And it's the same thing in a startup. A lot of people are doing a lot of different things at the beginning as well. Or when you start to hire and grow, like hire more people and you want to give freedom to the people, it's a way, it's a leadership. It's a leadership thing that you can do is to give people freedom to you know, go in all directions. But at the end of the day, there are some points where some actions are not efficient at all. And then this is a part about, we all tend to do that. By nature, we tend to go in a direction where it's something that we like to do, or it's something that we're good at. But most of the time, the problem is some people really like to do something, and it's not the thing that is most efficient for the company. Maybe it's also efficient for the person as a feeling, but it's not for the company as, as a whole. So I really think that's something that can be taken is when you have a team, you can give freedom to people, but it's very important to measure and if you evaluate what are the actions of the different people and to be able to say, yeah, actually this kind of partnership, we're going to do it now, or this kind of job, we're not going to focus on, or this channel on marketing, for example, we tried it, but it doesn't work. And I think one of the way to do that in terms of measuring, and you're going to talk about it just after. It's also about measuring KPIs. When I was a CMO at iMusician, was really good at that, say, I don't want to have a new project starting if we don't have a goal in mind and a clear KPI on how we're going to measure its effectiveness. And then you can give like, freedom to the people and say, yeah, just tell me what you're going to do, tell me how you're going to measure it, and then just start with it. And then in one month or in three months, you can measure and say, yeah, it worked out, let's actually go all in on that or yeah let's stop it because it doesn't work absolutely and just thinking in the commercial context because you probably won't have that many volunteers in a commercial startup but what you will get i think that i've always seen happen is people who want to advise you because everyone likes everyone who works in a full-time job likes to think that they're an entrepreneur and they like to <laughs> dabble in being an entrepreneur And the way to dabble in it without taking any of the risk or having to work 100-hour weeks or any of the rest of it is to mentor a founder. Well, that's just a classic example of someone who's trying to do a nice thing. But are they actually going to make you do your job better? And if they are, then great. But if not, do you want to spend an hour a month talking to them and getting their advice if it's not really helping you? Now, it might seem kind of mean to say, well, it's only an hour a month, you know, and they're a nice person. But really, unless you're getting something back on that, don't do it. And, and this is something I've seen a lot, partly because I was, I'm still quite young. So I'm in my early 30s and my previous charity where I was the first member of staff and the COO to, with the CEO setting it up and, and scaling it. People love to try and mentor me because they saw me as, the, as I was, a very raw, young you know, person in their very early 20s trying to run an organization. But ultimately... One or two people gave me great advice, and many of them, I think the mentoring sessions that they wanted to do were about making themselves feel better and getting to opine on things outside their usual job. That wasn't an effective use of time, and I was time poor like everyone who's running 
the business. I was extremely time poor and I could have used that time to do something else. I hope people working with me won't think that. <laughs> That's also called about like skin in the game, right? Like mm. when people have skin in the game, they, this is also something that I try to do, for example, when I worked with startups. Everyone wants to get paid for the experience as well. But sometimes when you work with small startups, they can't pay you the, the way you would like to. The, the kind of salary or expectation they have regarding the experience and bring on the table. But what I like to do with some startups is to put skin in the game is to say, yeah, actually, you know, let's agree on a price that is good for me, but you can't pay me now. But actually, when you raise your next round of funding, let's work the next six months together until the next round of funding. And until that point, you can pay me only a third of the price. But if we reach that point and you, you're happy with the result, then I can get what I expect to be my salary or my, my hourly rate later on. Because I agree with you too, when I started freelancing two years ago, I heard that way too often, is that people, especially advisors or consultants, as uh, we call them, very often are not efficient. Yeah, well, t just two things I want to pick up out of that. So the first one is, this comes up in the charitable sector all the time, because it is almost impossible to work in the charitable sector, at least outside the United States, without making a big financial sacrifice. Everybody who works for you is giving up money that they could earn doing something else. And so you need to reward them in some way. Now, you're probably not going to be able to use that model. I think that's really smart, the model you just talked about in a commercial setting. But I can't say to my staff, do your job well now and I'll pay you double in five years time because that's not really how the nonprofit sector works unfortunately i mean look i guess if we if we grow if we carry on growing 140 a year everyone's salaries will go up but can you uh, just a question here i know for example in germany uh, i talked with the ngo founder who also told me that for example as a ceo she can't be paid more than five thousand euro a month is there something like that in i don't know where your company's set up like has been uh, incorporated What's your view on that? You seem to be doing a, a tremendous job and for the charity right now. And you were not the founder. You were a member for a long time of, uh, before, before becoming the CEO of One for the World. Can you get paid, you know, like 100,000 euro, like a normal CEO would be paid, oh, even more for, for the company if you manage to grow the company 5,000% within the next 10 years? Yes, you can be. So there's no legal limit. I mean, our, our charity is incorporated in New York. And if you've ever been to New York, they, they don't set caps on the amount of money you can make in that city, uh, noticeably. Um, I have very strong views on executive pay within the charitable sector that people may think are a conflict of interest because I work there. But you're not going to solve the biggest problems in the world without getting really talented people to work on them. I think just about everybody who works in this sector accepts that they're going to sacrifice some of what they could earn in the private sector to work in it. But I find it kind of bizarre that we say, I want you to cure cancer, but I don't want to pay you more than 5,000 euro a month to do it. And actually, There, are, there is no consistent way of working out what people should be paid, right? If you actually try to analyze the salaries that people earn, there is no consistent, because there's always some justification, but you can't apply it across different things. So, well, I'm a doctor, so I trained for ages. Okay, but that person's an academic and they trained for ages and they're paid a tenth of what you are. So it's not how long you train for. Well, I'm a doctor and I help people. Okay, but this person's a social worker or works in a care home looking after the elderly when they can't 
wash themselves and they earn a one percent of what you do i'm not wailing on doctors here i just think whatever whatever rationale you use there is no clear rationale for how much people are paid but i do find it really perverse that we as a society are happy for hedge fund managers to earn more than the gdp of a small country and yet we think that people who are trying to cure cancer should be paid a maximum of five thousand euro a month I believe that we should try to encourage the most talented people in the world to work on the biggest, most difficult problems in the world to try to solve them. I think that's good for everybody. And I think that part of encouraging them to do that is paying them well and giving them a comfortable life. All that being said, I have some ethical concerns about people who are paid seriously large amounts of money. I'll give you an example in the public sphere. David Miliband, who used to be a politician in the UK and now runs, I think it's called the IRC, the International Rescue Committee. I will briefly look that up while we're talking. He is paid, I think, something like $800,000 a year. There has to be some upper cap where you are. Oh, sorry, I've just found this $900,000. Is he even 100% on it? Yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah. Uh And I'm sure he's really good at his job. (laughs) But I feel like there's a point where you have a comfortable life, a really comfortable life, and don't want for anything. And at that point, you should probably start asking for more money and put it back into the, into the charity. But leaving those boundary cases to one side, I probably shouldn't have mentioned that because your listeners are probably now thinking, oh, I can't believe some charitable CEO has paid $900,000 a year. That is not typical in this sector. Broadly speaking, I think we should try to pay people enough to work in this sector that they have a comfortable life and they're incentivized to stay in it for a long time and to become expert in doing what they do. And if people are sitting there thinking, no, if you work for a charity, you shouldn't earn more than 60,000 euro a year. I would just challenge them to justify why we are happy for people to earn more than that, to do things that have no noticeable positive effect on society or maybe make it much worse, which is what lots of people's jobs seem to do. I mean, I agree 100% with you. Of course, everything is down to the money that is made by and, and brought in the whole like, economical system. But that's also a reason why I think if you have a charity which is 100 times more efficient than others, because as you said, you bring super talented people in it and you want to retain them, these people like, need to, like, if they were in the, the private sector, they would get paid better because they're doing a good job. And this is a good way as well to say, and I have no problem at all giving money to a charity where I know that people are very well paid because they're doing an awesome job. If I compare that to giving the money to a charity that I know, like making a job 100 times as efficient as another, because the people are paid 100 times less, everything is linked together, right? It's also about the training you can do. Like if you want people to be effective in your company, you want to be able to train them. If you want to be able to train them, you need to have money, you need to spend money for that. So. All of that to say, just I agree with you. Let's move to the next <laughs> do you have. Uh, I'm just going to recommend something to your listeners here. There's a TED Talk by a guy called Dan Palotta, P-A-L-L-O-T-T-A, called The Way We Think About Charity is Dead Wrong. Listen to it. Listen to it. It is so interesting about the if you want to solve massive problems, you should invest lots of money in doing it. And I, honestly, I can't recommend it too highly. People should listen to this TED Talk. Okay, I will put it in the, in the resources as well. Let's move to the fourth do you send me, which is do measure your ROI. So, yes. So, perfect. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> perfect move. 
Yes, and this obviously this relates exactly to the conversation about salaries. In my experience, charities in particular are really reticent to measure how much time and money they spend doing things and how much return they get for that. Now, that goes for the simple transactional things like fundraising. So, well, we talked about the poker game earlier, the theoretical poker game. If this event <laughs> like is the fun, theoretical poker game. Yes, it's, it's, it, sounds, it, it sounds like some sort of um, philosophical <laughs> physics experiment, doesn't it? We've done Schrodinger's cat, now we're doing the theoretical poker game. Anyway, so an event might be really fun for people to attend, but how much does it cost to put on? both in direct costs, so, you know, literally hiring somewhere to do it and providing food or whatever, but also in time. How much time does it take your staff to put on? And what does it raise? Now, even that, which sounds really simple, lots of charities don't really want to do that. They're like, oh, yeah, but it's fun. People like coming to the event. It's a, Well, what people will often do, this is a classic. I've had this a lot in my career. Um, well, it didn't raise that much money, but it raised a lot of goodwill. Oh, great. Well, I'll pay the staff in goodwill next month, shall I? That's really helpful. Someone once said to me, you shouldn't fundraise, you should friend raise. That is nonsense. If it's a fundraising <laughs> event, it's there to raise money. I can't pay people in friends. So anyway, so on the transactional stuff, measure your ROI. But also try to apply this to the impact of what you're doing, which isn't normally transactional. So a question for one for the world, how many lives did we change with, with this program? Most charities can't answer very basic questions that would help them to work this out. So these are questions like, is what we're doing having a measurable, sustained, positive effect on the problem? I kind of throw this back to your example of the Sea Shepherd. They probably have because they seem like quite smart people. But are they really sure that running those ships is actually genuinely making a change in the problem that they're trying to address? Or do they just hope, it, hope it's going to make that change? Secondly, is what we're doing the best way of creating this change? And why? And my, in my experience, the answer to this is usually... Yeah, it definitely is the best way of doing this because our founder, who has absolutely no lived experience of this problem, thought of it over breakfast one day and set up a charity to do it and now we will work for it. Now, that is not a strong theory of change, but that is what happens a lot in the charitable sector and in the commercial sector, by the way. If you look at Y Combinator and the commercial startups they have, they are founded on hope, not on evidence, but anyway. And then finally... If we're really sure that we're making a difference and we're really sure that we're using the best possible method to do this, is the way that we deliver it the leanest possible way to do that that delivers the best value to our donors? Now, you can't expect every charity in the world to answer these questions using these randomized control trials, which are very expensive and you need to be operating at very large scale to do them. But there are loads of tools out there that will help you track how much time you're spending on things. And it's very easy to track your direct costs. I mean, even a simple Excel spreadsheet will help you say, well, I put on this event, how much did I spend on food and, and venue hire and, uh, I don't know, people to staff it. That, that bit's very easy. And so if you can put just a bit of time into thinking about, well, how do we track the impact of what we're doing? And by the way, what most charities do, which is they survey people one week after an event or, 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 a, or a program or a mentoring session and say, do you think it helped you, which is not a very high standard of evidence. But if you can put <laughs> a bit of time into thinking, well, how am I going to try and track the impact of what I'm doing? Then you're going to start to get some idea of the ROI of what you're doing. And once you've got that idea, then you can start running split tests, A-B tests, um, and mixing up one thing, changing one variable and comparing the difference. And then you get into this virtuous feedback loop 
Any of your listeners who've read Lean Startup will know about this. You get a small amount of data, you go where the data tells you, and then over time you get more data and you refine and you refine and you refine. But I think most people, probably in commercial businesses as well, actually, they do things on faith rather than on evidence because measuring the ROI of what you're doing is hard and it's scary. It's hard because it can be hard to track, well, how much time am I spending on this and what's the exact benefit of what I'm doing? But it's also scary because you might have to say, this thing that I thought I was going to do with this company, I can't do anymore. I need to stop it completely and do something else. And that's very scary to people. But ultimately, by not doing these things, you're just delaying um, the inevitable. I mean, there's this classic thing Donald Trump said, I don't want more tests because then we'll have more cases of coronavirus. Testing people for coronavirus doesn't give them (laughs) coronavirus. They have it whether or not you test them. Well, by by the same token... You might as well find out whether your program is efficient or your company's doing something that people actually want to buy early rather than later. Big criteria coming into that play, especially for charities, is also the fact that lots of money comes for free. I mean, for free, especially when thinking about grants, for example, when you have money that comes where you didn't directly put effort except maybe applying for them. And then, you know, I have 10,000 to organize that event. And I organize that event, which is completely different than saying, okay, now I'm putting 10,000 euros off my own pocket to organize that event now. So in that case, you're a bit more cautious usually about the ROI. Yeah. Last do you send me is do set aside time for management. Very important point, I guess. This is my, um, my hobby at work at the moment, is <laughs> thinking about managing people. And... The more I look into this, the more I think that 90% of people who are supposed to manage somebody else don't really do any management at all. So the most basic form of what we call management is someone who already has to work a really demanding job and then every now and then carves out an hour to sit down with someone else and tell them to do things as well. And that's it. They just give them tasks, task delegation, basically like an in-person version of Asana or Trello, if you've ever used those. And that's not management. That's just assigning tasks. And because it because they already have a full time job and have no time to think about it, they do that in the most efficient way possible, which is just to sit down and just tell this person, right, do this, 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 this and this. Is that clear? Right. Thanks. Off you go. Management. For me. Is about getting the maximum return out of the people who work for you for the organization. And if you just think about the amount of time you have, which is finite, there is a limit to how much time you can spend doing something in a week. And the amount of time that one or two or three or four people who work for you have, you get a multiplier effect on your time if you can get those people to work more efficiently using some of your time. So that's probably quite hard to follow. So think of it like this. If I spend four hours a week managing someone, actively managing them, trying to make them happier, better at doing their job, coaching them, giving them feedback, etc., they can then go and use 36 other hours more effectively, which is how much they have left in a 40-hour work week. So my investment of four hours is going to produce a benefit over 36 hours. That is a very, very, very good investment of time. We need to completely flip the way that we think about management, I think, in just across the professional world. Because management is something that people do 
in their spare time around their very busy full-time jobs. What we should be doing is making management the number one priority of people who are managers. Because if they do management really, really, really well, if they really spend time to think about the people who work for them as individuals and how to motivate them and upskill them and get them to do more, the, the whole productivity of that organization will go up hugely. It's a much better use of time to spend an hour on management than it is to spend an hour on doing something yourself, especially if you manage more than one person, because you might be able to have a one hour call with your team where you do a really good job of managing them. And then for every hour that they then go and work on this, you might get four hours of productivity back for that one hour of investment. So this, this just seems quite obvious to me, but it's not something we do, I think, for practical reasons, because we often ask people to be managers when they get more senior. And when they get more senior, they have more work to do and we need them to do more things. And so they have to do it in their spare time. And so not only do I think we need to reprioritize, but we also need to um, think about management, not just as task delegation, but as, as, as people development as well. You're like, tackling it right now. So there is a whole discussion about management versus leadership. But here we can talk about both in what you just mentioned. But for me, management, as you said, is not only delegating tasks. So for me, there is the feedback part, incorporating time for one-on-ones or team reviews every month, every three months. I was doing it every month. It was taking me a huge amount of time in my previous job as a CMO. But the reward on it was, I think, super high. Like coaching is one thing. Having a clear vision as a leader in order to be able and explain it, not only have it knit for yourself. Uh, and then career development, evaluating the hidden, being if you spend time with them, you'll be also able to evaluate the hidden skills and also talk with them to know where they want to go. Among these things, are there other criteria than that that you, you consider being important in what you explain being management in that case, apart from just delegating tasks? There's something that cuts across all of those things. All of those things sound great. I think they should all be done. But there's something that cuts across all of them, which is... And this goes back to my first point. So my first point was don't try to persuade people, right? What a lot of people do is they communicate with other people in the way that they would find most persuasive and most effective if people were communicating with them. So they think, right, I need to give this member of staff feedback. And I know that if I was getting feedback, I'd want it to sound like this. So that's how I'm going to say it. But actually, of course, what we should be doing is thinking, I'm going to give some feedback to Jules. How am I going to phrase this in a way that resonates with him, that lets him know most clearly what I'm trying to say to him and that communicates with him most effectively? So not what would persuade me, Jack, that I need to do this thing better, but what's going to persuade him, Jills, how to do this better? I noticed when I look back on my management in my last job where I was seriously, seriously overloaded with work. When I left, I was replaced by two full-time hires, to give you some example of the amount of stuff I was trying to do. What I noticed was when I then tried to manage people on top of that, I just defaulted to whatever mode of communication would work best for me because I didn't have time to think about it. And that meant I managed people who were like me brilliantly and I managed everybody else horribly because as long as they responded in exactly the same way that I would respond, as long as we had the same personality type, it was great. But for everybody else, I just wasn't speaking their language at all. And so I, th I think it's not just about okay, we have this hour every week when we're going to talk and we have this quarterly review every three months and, and, and we have this team call on a Monday and so on and so forth. It's also about, well, when I'm in that time, 
what preparation have I done to try and communicate most effectively? And, and by the way, again, I think this is a problem, which is when we have very overworked people and we ask them to manage, they may diligently put an hour of management time in every Friday to meet with their direct report. But if they start thinking about that 30 seconds before that session starts, they're probably not going to do a very good job in that hour. <laughs> now, 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 there are probably people listening to this thinking, yeah, yeah, fine, I agree with that. But I mean, put yourself in my shoes. How am I going to, I can't carve out an hour just to think about how to manage people. Well, I'm sympathetic to that. But ultimately, this year, I've really tried to put in more blocks of time for me to think about the people who work for me and how to approach them. And I think I've seen really, really good results from that. And the feedback I'm getting from them suggests that that's working really well. So my challenge to you is, if you're thinking I'm too busy to do that, is it more or less important than the thing you're going to do instead? Because the chances are, if you upskill the person who's working for you and motivate them and speak their language, they can probably do the work you were going to do in that hour for you. And even without having to drop anything else off their plate, because you've just made them more effective and more efficient through your, through your good management. And so I think it's a good use of time. But that's long-term return on investment. That's what people have to understand. If you only prioritize short-term thinking then and return, then you, you won't have, be able to have an efficient strategy on the long term. And for me, what you explained me really resonates with me as something that you need to invest the time now. And as you said, taking that hour to prepare the meetings the way I was also spending like almost one and a half days in one-on-ones with my team every month. At the end of the two years, after two years, I could see the results of it compared to the way I hadn't done it in my previous job before that. So I really think with you that this is something I would really encourage people to to dig more into. Have you read the, the Culture Map, the book? No, but I'm very interested in resources about management at the moment. It's one of the, the ones that I have read recently, very helpful. It's called The Culture Map. And for especially for all of us who are working in international environment and the more and more remote work we have, it really explains how different countries are reacting to different ways of communicating. For example, giving feedback is very specific to every country. For example, French are the one the most direct at giving feedback, while Americans are very indirect. Americans are way more direct at, at approaching people than French people at like putting down the barriers and talking very like easily to strangers. But when it comes to feedback, Americans are very the opposite of French. She gives this example of a manager she had to coach who went to the US and she thought about her first like two or three months that she was doing an awesome job with her team. And the feedback with the team was like, she's horrible as a manager. Actually, what she didn't realize is that she would start feedback interviews by saying, this went well. But what doesn't go well is that and that and that and that. Well, in the US, people have grown up their whole life with this. It's all it's culture. That's why it says it's, it's a culture map. It's cultural. People have grown up saying, before you say something negative, say at least three things positive. And it's something to me that like, yeah, I never heard that, like growing back on the French part of Belgium, because this is no how we grew up. This is not the culture. And so the people working with that lady were like offended. Because in the US, you would be allowed to say, actually, that is going very well. That is very, also very positive. That side is also very positive. Yeah, that side, you know, could be actually improved a bit. And you would leave it like that. And for you, as an American person, that would mean that you, you have to really work on that part. While for, on the other side, for example, that 
French manager from her, the person she was reporting to, she thought that she was doing an awesome job because the manager would say three positive things about her and then say, yeah, you know, you might work a bit on that. And then she was like, oh, that's not a big deal. But so The Culture Map is really like a super interesting book if you want to progress on, on that part, whatever it's on management, but also like your relationship with others. And I've seen this in action because I'm British, I live in Germany, I'm married to an Australian, and I, everyone I manage is American and lives in the US. And it, <laughs> honestly, I really underestimated, hugely underestimated, how long it would take to get cultural fit between me and the guys in the States. Um, I actually thought when I started, this will not be a problem. America and the UK are not that different. We speak the same language. This can't be that hard. Also, I'm very um, in love, romantically in love with America. So I spend a lot of time consuming American cultural products. And so I thought I'm, I'm, I'm going to be fine. Really took us at least a year to work out a way of speaking to each other. And what you just said is exactly what I was saying, which is, she thought she was saying one thing and they were hearing something else. The same words meant different things to each of them. She thought she was saying, hey, you did a pretty good job on that. Well done. But here are five things I want done better. And they heard you did a horrible job on that because I only have one nice thing to say about it and five things that you need to do much better. And, and so it's not an effective way of communicating. One thing I want to talk about here, because it links some of the do's and don'ts is this is only something I've experimented with, so I can't say to your listeners that this definitely works because I've only been doing it since January this year. But I've built in a lot of feedback mechanisms into One for the World. So we now have an anonymous feedback link that anyone can use at any time, a monthly survey on team effectiveness and psychological safety, which doesn't actually involve feedback so much as it's just a series of statements and how much people agree with them. But it gives me a kind of moving average of how we think about ourselves as a team. And it's, it's anonymous. I fill it out and all the staff fill it out and then I aggregate the results. And so that just gives me some feedback on how we're doing on those measurements. Every single one to one, we use seven questions that were recommended by Google. Google did a big piece of work on effective management. I think it's called Project Aristotle, but I'd have to check. There's also one I think called Project Oracle that they did. Anyway, they looked at a load of evidence of what makes good managers within Google. And they recommended that you always have seven questions in every one-to-one. And one of them is, what should I start, stop, or continue? And so every week when I have my one-to-one, I have an hour's one-to-one every week with everyone who works for me, with each person who works for me. There is always the question, what should I start, stop or continue? Now, most weeks people say, no, it's fine, nothing, I don't have any feedback. But it means that whenever they do have feedback, they know that they're going to get asked and it's not a big deal. Because the problem is, otherwise, when they do have feedback, then that becomes stressful because they're like, oh, man, I need to say to my boss, I have some (laughs) feedback for you, I need to plan how to do this. But if you just build it in, it's completely culturally normal that I'm going to ask you every week for feedback then it's very easy for them. And sometimes they've brought up stuff and they've said, look, I know that this is a real one, actually. Uh, I almost hesitate to bring this up. It's such a small thing, but you know you're about two minutes late to every team call. Well, they probably never would have mentioned that, but it would have annoyed them. And because there's this space, they can bring it up and it's that thing of little and often. And so then I'm able to say, oh, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but that is true and that isn't polite. Uh, It's quite disrespectful. I'm going to be on time now. I'm going to be on time going forward. And so if you add all of these things together 
And then every year I have pool 360 feedback as the executive director. So the board, outside supporters and all the staff give anonymous feedback to the chair of trustees. And then that's delivered to me. If you add all these things together, that's a lot of feedback mechanisms. May, you know, some people might listen to that and think, well, that's too much. You don't need that much. Well, people don't have to use them. But having all of them means I think I get more higher quality feedback than most people who are managing in their jobs. And I'm sure that makes me a better manager hearing regularly from the people. It's a bit like your customers, right? You want feedback from your customers to make your product better. Well, the people who work for me are basically the customers and I want to hear from them how I can do that better. And so I, I, I hope that I'm at the start of becoming much better than average at managing people. Build feedback mechanism. That's one of the best things I've heard since a while, Jack. I will ask you after this interview to, to try to find the seven questions by Google. It'd be great to share the resource as well. Let's move to the questions I like to ask everyone. What is the best advice you've been given as an entrepreneur? Every time you're going to do something, think, am I the best person to do this? And if the answer is no, get someone else to do it for you. Very good one. Which book would you recommend entrepreneurs to, like you to read? So I'd love to have your management resources here, but uh, also anything else. Yeah, I have so many. Okay. For running your company, that is for the kind of operational side of what you do, read Lean Startup. I know that's incredibly common, that recommendation, but it will change your mind about how you incorporate feedback into what you do. And if you do it well... How is it called? Lean Startup. Ah, the Lean Startup book, yeah, okay, yeah. from Eric, uh, Eric Rees. Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure <laughs> that's probably the most obvious recommendation, but really, if you actually apply it to your business, you will just make your business about a thousand times better, a thousand times quicker than you would otherwise. Uh, mindset by Carol Dweck is about the growth mindset, which is an educational paradigm that basically says most people think you have talent when you're born and it never changes and you're good at some things and you're not at others and that's the way it is. Actually, there is loads of evidence that you can become good at anything if you are able to take feedback, see setbacks as, as learning experiences and you have the growth mindset, you believe you can grow and change your strengths over time. And that will fundamentally change how you see the world. Growth mindset has made I've never seen the world in the same way since I read it about 10 years ago. And I think it's critical to how you manage people and how you manage yourself and how you do feedback and everything else. I really, really recommend it. And then a podcast that I'm going to recommend, not a book. That's great because that was the next question. So, Oh, good. Okay. Is um, building a second brain, which is the idea that at any one time you can access a tiny fraction of your own experience basically what's in your i guess kind of short-term memory but obviously over time you're getting loads of experience and ideas and great input and seeing things you'd like to copy and so on and so forth and so it just talks about ways of documenting and indexing what you learn And there are tools out there for doing this that you can use to create wikis for yourself or to have personal notes. But it's really, really, really fundamentally changed the way that I think about knowledge, knowledge management. And I've started doing this now. I've started taking a lot more notes using, I, I um, use Notion, which is a common tool for tracking development and knowledge management. 
and is, is well designed. It lets you link to things and put in graphics and link different pages together when they're relevant to each other. And it's very searchable. This really changed the way that I think about knowledge and how you build experience in your own career and creativity. And it's really short. Each episode something like six minutes and there's 10 episodes. So I would, I, I would really recommend people listen to that. It changed my mind about a lot of things. I didn't know about it. I will definitely check it out and add it in the resources. And I agree with Notion. We, we talk a lot about Notion and how to build a second brain in Notion. Uh, lots of resources out there if people Google it. Uh, and Notion is a fantastic tool for that. And going back to management and onboarding, Notion can also really help you to, to really improve all the knowledge of the company, not only on your, of yourself as a knowledge management system. Yeah, I was just obsessively using Notion recently to onboard this new member of staff, first person I've onboarded at One for the World in two years, and spent so long thinking about their onboarding. So really tried to practice what I've talked about, set aside half days to just plan their onboarding. Think, what do they need to know and how am I going to get them to do it? And who do I need to be involved? And who do I need to ask now to block out time in their diary? And how do I make them feel culturally welcome? Made this huge notion and then basically went through and tried to execute it. And now I have a Notion page for everyone that I manage where I keep notes on, oh, I noticed that, or that seemed to resonate with them, or that's the name of their dog that they seem really fond of. Just whatever it is you need to know <laughs> about these people, you know, that, oh, I, I tried giving the feedback like this and it actually went really badly. So next time I'm going to try something else. But you'll forget those things, right? You'll go into a one-to-one -one in three months and you will have forgotten that incident, but not if you have really well-organized notes. And that's the point of like having a second brain. This is why we call it that way, right? Some people say, yeah, you should remember these things like, you know, like, a, for example, the name of the kid of that person or something like that. But actually it's proven that your brain can only store a certain amount of information And the older you get, the, the more difficult it gets, the more amount of information you have to store because you basically have met more people if you are 50 than if you are 20. And I really think that these tools are something that are very, very useful for that too. I try to free my mind as much as possible by putting everything, sometimes in Notion, sometimes in Asana, but, uh, or in Evernote, it doesn't matter, but uh, to put them somewhere. It's very interesting. One of the things I wanted to tell you, Jack, the most interesting I've learned from a friend recently who also has his own company is that he told me that now it doesn't do any more anything that can be recorded on video and anything that might have to repeat a second time to someone else. Now he never does it live anymore. And this is something that also changed completely my mind. Uh, and I was like, okay, if I would be back now and having my team, this is something that I would definitely do. And I actually started to do it with the clients I work with. For example, when I'm onboarding clients in Asana or whatever tools I'm using with them, I tended to explain them directly every time. Sometimes it's just five minutes. And it's five minutes. You say, yeah, you know, it's going to be fine. I'm going to take five minutes with that person, explain him that. But I just realized but that applying what he just explained to me, I've just started to apply it a few months ago, and it really changes the amount of time that I'm saving because then you could just record a video let's say tomorrow uh, somebody in your team is asking you where you have to find something or you can do it in Notion but, or, or something that needs a bit more explanation than just on text just take Loom or use Descript or one of these free tools to just record your screen capture and just explain it directly there with just a headphone or even the microphone of your computer it doesn't matter the quality Uh, and then the next time somebody asks you, you just send them the link and it's just going to save you so much time. And if you have a Mac, you have a screen record function built in. And I'm pretty sure it's shift I command didn't... five will bring up a screen record function 
One uh, last question. Can you tell me one thing about you that I wouldn't be able to find out online? I can. <laughs> Obviously, the first things that come to mind are quite personal. Okay. I used to hold jointly the world record for playing rugby continuously for the longest time. So the charity that I used to work for used sport to help people who were unemployed and at risk of being excluded from school, especially rugby. And a group of us played full contact rugby under normal rules for 28 and a half hours continuously and broke the Guinness World Record. It was awful. Yeah, it was absolutely awful. It is fair to say after the first couple of hours, the standard of the rugby declined a lot. Thank you very much, Jack. Thank you very much for sharing that, that specific episode of your life with us, but also for sharing all these uh, massively useful advice today and your experience. Now it's your time before we, we finish this episode. What is your ask? Where can I will, of course, share the link to your LinkedIn page, the charity website. So one for the world. Is there anything else you want to ask your audience right now? The ask is very simple. It's the same ask we make of everybody. If you believe that you can survive on 99% of your income, please give 1% of your income through One for the World to the most cost-effective charities in the world. We don't take any money out of your donations. Once it reaches us, we pass it on in full to these amazing charities. And you can save lives right now without having to change anything in your life. If you go to our website, which is the number one for the world, number one for the world.org, you'll be able to see different donation options. And if you live in a country where we don't personally accept donations, we know someone who does who will also pass on your donations in full to these charities. So anyone who's interested in doing this, we can help you to do it. I promise you, you will be no financially poorer but you will be spiritually and ethically so much richer if you do this. Thank you very much, Jack. As I said, I will be the one starting it too after this episode. So thank you very much for your time. Have a great day. I hope to meet you soon in Berlin because you're in the same city. Finally, to meet you in, in real life and all the best with your company and with the, the massive impact that you're having on the world right now. Thanks so much. I've really enjoyed this. Thanks very much for having me. If you like this episode, you can share it with your friends because sharing is caring and you can give it a five star on Apple podcast because this really helps to make it more visible to other entrepreneurs working on a better future like you. If you are busy and might not have the time to listen to all episodes of this podcast, just a little tip. Sign up for my newsletter on gtimpact.com. You will receive the summary of advice from each episode and you will get personal recommendations on which episode you should focus on depending on your current challenges, your industry and your startup stage.